this idea that humanity is going to branch out and have these colonies and permanent habitations in space is actually to become a reality. It's in everybody's interest that we don't make space an unsustainable area. Nobody can claim space. No country could stick their flag in an asteroid or in the moon or claim it for themselves as a sovereign territory. You're listening to Widdishin's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, Wordery and The Book Depository. And the book you see we're reflecting on this week is Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinland. It seeks to both offend and challenge all, and I mean all, of the social norms that we have inherited from birth. And it also explains why the US Library of Congress named the book as one of the 88 books that shaped America. It's based around the story of Valentine, a human boy who was born on Mars and raised by Martians. He returns to Earth with legal ownership of Mars. But what I really want to express here is that this book is going to test you. It is confronting and politically incorrect throughout pretty much the whole read. Hyman systematically makes most readers mad. You'll find the link to Stranger in a Strange Land in the show notes. My name is Amy Rose, and as a host of Widdishins, I bring to you our first ever episode, a bonus episode on space law, in a conversation with Professor Stephen Freeland. Stephen is a professor of international law at the University of Western Sydney. He's a member of faculty of the London Institute of Space Policy and Law, and a member of the Australian delegation to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Thank you so much, Professor Stephen Freeland, for speaking with me today on Wittishin's podcast. My pleasure. I want to know about your journey. So I know that you're a lawyer, are you? Yes, I am. So it depends how far of a journey you want, but my undergraduate qualifications a thousand years ago were <laughs> in law and economics, and then I've had a number of careers. So I was a, an actor for a while, and then I was a commercial lawyer with a multinational law firm and had the privilege of being in various countries around the world with that. Then I became an investment banker for a long time, again, in various countries in the world. And then I retired, went back and did some study in the Netherlands, uh, and then eventually came back to Australia and tried to work out what I should do then. And so I then became an academic. So I became an academic in the early 2000s. And I've been an academic for 16 years, something like that. But That's an early retirement. Retirement is probably overstating the case, yeah. but you, you know what I mean. I was very fortunate, but I think I'm also very fortunate because I never wanted to be an academic, but I decided that with the benefit of my professional experience of you know 20 years and my interest in a whole range of international law issues, of which space is, of course, one, that I would be a reasonably good person to communicate to students, but also to the broader community, which is very much what I like doing, about the challenges of the 21st century and how law, regulation, policy, politics, strategy, 
and a whole range of other issues need to be considered on an ongoing basis to mesh with what is happening in the 21st century and in the area of space. And I'm privileged to do a lot of things in space for governments and for the UN and for industry. In the area of space, of course, because the technology is moving so forward, space is so important from so many angles, you know, science and technology and exploration and commerce and politics and strategy and military and for the sake of humanity and culturally and socially, there's so many aspects to space. I think it's useful to have someone like myself, and there are many other good people, of course, who have a broader perspective of essentially how the world works and how different disciplines and different areas are intertwined and how they relate to each other because space is so complex. And a lot of people tend to think about space in binary terms, but Space is multi, multifaceted. You specialised in, and you still do, in international law. Correct. How does that differ from space law? Because it's quite niche. To me, it feels like a totally different ballgame. What do you have to apply to space that doesn't really apply to international law? And can anyone in international law be in space law? <laughs> it's a really good question. International law at its basis level is the legal framework that regulates the relationship between countries, we call countries states. So that's at its basis level. It's much, much more than that. And therefore, it's law that's made by states to regulate themselves, for states. And to a certain degree, states don't really like international law. This is a massive generality, but they don't necessarily like international law because it imposes standards on them that may in some way, shape or form compromise their ability to be to exercise complete control within their territory. Okay, so that's a generalized statement. Space is one of those areas, like many, many others, where the rules have been developed on the basis that countries are dealing with each other because of the legal characteristics of how we classify space. We classify outer space from a legal perspective, and I can go into why but we classify it as an area beyond national jurisdiction. So what that means is that, for example, in Australia, we have, if you like, above the physical territory of Australia, we have airspace, and then above that we have outer space. Now, obviously, scientists might talk in terms of a number of different types of spaces, but for simplicity, we've got airspace and outer space. And from a legal perspective, Australian law applies to the airspace above Australia. But Australian law does not apply to the outer space above Australia. So there are completely two different legal frameworks and characteristics above our heads. So, as I said, space is regarded as an area beyond national jurisdiction. So what that means, and, and an analogy to that, although there are differences, but an analogy to that is an area on, on Earth called the high seas, which is an area of water that is beyond national jurisdiction. So what that means is instead space, like the high seas, is this area that is managed by everybody, so to speak, by the international community, although community is an interesting word. And it's as if everybody has the right of access to go there and the right to do things in those areas, but subject to whatever restrictions or guidelines or obligations are imposed by this multinational, multilateral 
framework of law. Likewise, in space, we've decided that we need to have an international regime of management. And so we have a series of United Nations treaties that were promulgated in the period following Sputnik going up in 1957. So Sputnik 1 was the first human-made object that was sent out and orbited the Earth. And, you know, I'm delighted to be talking about space because I'm a Sputnik baby. I was born in, I, I was born <laughs> in, I was born in 1957. And so clearly somebody decided that I would be talking about space when I got a bit older. That's bizarre. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. So we have a series of treaties which set out really, really fundamental framework principles about the way space is to be used and explored. Those treaties were put together in the height of the Cold War. It's actually quite remarkable. Wow, that's ages ago. But that's not to say, and I'll explain why, that's not to say that they're not, they're even more important now than they ever were, and I'll explain that. But they were put together in the height of the Cold War, and it's, that in itself is quite remarkable because in the height of the Cold War, you, of course, had the two main protagonists, the United States and the Soviet Union, who clearly were at loggerheads and whole bunch of ways. And they both saw space very much in strategic and military terms. They both saw that they needed to extend their space technology to enhance their comparative advantage over the other and, of course, over the rest of the world. And yet they both, because they were at that time the only two countries that had space capability, obviously now many more do, and yet at that time, even though they were protagonists and competing terrestrially and obviously both wanting to enhance their space capability, they both managed to agree on fundamental principles, which are now enshrined in these treaties, which were supported, of course, by everybody else, that by and large talk about peace in space, although, you know, that there's a wrinkle to that. Cooperation, doing things in space that are for global benefits and a whole range of other things. And they agreed also, and this is fundamental, that space would remain this area beyond national jurisdiction in the point that nobody can claim space. No country could stick their flag in an asteroid or in, a, in the moon or claim it for themselves as a sovereign territory. And that has pervaded lots and lots of law and lots and lots of guidelines that have been developed. That said, notwithstanding how good all this is, the technology's raced forward. We're doing things in space now that were beyond contemplation even five or 10 years ago, let alone 40 or 50 years ago. And no doubt you and I will be witness to things we do in space that still are beyond your and my rational contemplation in the next whatever period of time. And so in any area where technology races ahead, the law always lags behind. And that's not related just to space. You know, you look at bioethics and development of genome technology and cloning and look at autonomous weapons in warfare and all these things. The law lags behind. But the fundamental principles that exist, and we're trying to supplement that with guidelines, although it takes time, the fundamental principles guide it really well. And I just wanted to respond to your point about, well, that's a long time ago. Now, you weren't saying anything, but a lot of people say, hey, it's a long time ago, and therefore it's irrelevant. Firstly, that's not the case because the fundamental principles apply today just as much as they applied then, even though we're doing things that weren't in contemplation. But if you were to say I'm wrong on that argument, you'd have to look at other areas. And so, for example, 
the laws of war are governed by principles that are enshrined in the 1949 Geneva Conventions, which celebrated their 70th anniversary this year. And nobody, nobody would ever say, hey, the warfare has changed radically. You know, the technology of warfare has changed radically since 1949. Therefore, we just forget the Geneva Conventions because they're too old. Nobody would ever say that. And likewise, with things like space law, nobody can rationally, although some people do, because frankly, they don't really understand the consequences of what they're saying. And they're not speaking with a depth of the context and the legal knowledge. But likewise in space, these fundamental principles apply. They apply strongly. They've served us well. We haven't had conflicts in space. Sure, there are many, many issues. And there are military voices that talk about space now in as being just another warfighting domain. But that's just one of those voices I was talking about. And there are many voices about space. You might have that sneaky suspicion that we've cut a fair bit out of this episode. And your intuition is on point. But that's because we can't fit everything in. And you also might have a sneaky suspicion that we've done other interviews that are a little bit crazier. So if you want access to all the uncut episodes and the interviews that we decided to make private, just head to www.wittishinspodcast.com forward slash members only and you might just find your tribe. Okay, I'll let you get back to the episode now. I just want to give our listeners an example because I think you'll know the answer to this. We've got SpaceX launching Starlink and there's going to be all these satellites apparently and space junk. We already have space junk at the moment. But who's going to be responsible for that? I mean, because even though we all want this great connectivity, but how are we going to deal with where these satellites are roaming around and if it's in this person's way or who's going to be responsible for that? Well, that's a great question. And and if we can solve the answers to everybody's satisfaction, we, we are entitled to pat ourselves on the back. So under these treaties that exist, They contemplated the idea that even though at the time in the 60s and 70s, it was only really countries that would be doing things in space, clearly, even then they contemplated that non-governmental entities, private companies would ultimately come to space. And that has emerged. Space is an area which is highly commercialized as well. Many, many companies, you've mentioned Starlink from SpaceX, which is obviously a high profile one, but there are hundreds and hundreds of companies that are engaged in space activities, as well as countries themselves. And so these treaties contemplated that, and they said this. They said that countries would be responsible for national activities in space. So by and large, what that means is that, and I generalise, there are some exceptions, but essentially, if an Australian company, person, entrepreneur, whatever, but a non-governmental entity, were to engage in a space activity, either from Australia, let's say launching from Australia, or have a a satellite or a payload that was launched from another country, then with some minimal exceptions, Australia would be responsible for those activities. So the system that was put in place put the onus very much on countries. That said, as more and more private entities get involved, The treaties bind the countries, the countries with these obligations in mind, therefore, have to create national law. And so Australia has had national space law since 1998, and it's just been amended 
I was asked by the government to review the law. And out of the review that I started in 2015, the law has many other processes, but I did the initial review. Our Australian law has been amended as at August of this year. So countries now pass national space law. So Australia has obligations under the treaty. It has obligations, as I say, to ensure conformity and authorise and supervise. They then pass national law, which binds you and I, people under their jurisdiction. And that imposes a licensing regime because they've got to authorise under the international treaty. So they put in place a licensing regime under the national system. So depending on what you want to do in space, you have to apply to the government for the appropriate licence and the government will obviously ask lots of information and need to be satisfied on a whole range of things. That said, obviously, with the advent of now large private entities with big purses wanting to do incredibly ambitious things, that does change the dynamics somewhat. So you mentioned the fact that we have lots of debris. I mean, debris is a major, major problem that we need to address in space. And at the UN, where I have the honour of representing Australia, that issue is being discussed a lot, and we can talk about that. If you put it in context, you know, SpaceX has said that over the next decade, let's say, they want to launch upwards of 30 to 40,000 space objects in different altitudes, different orbits. Now, to put it in context, since the day I was born, i.e., you know, in 1957, humanity has launched in total probably about 5,000, albeit much larger. The Starlink ones, the small CubeSats, understood. But in terms of numbers of objects, humanity has launched 5,000, let's say, five to 6,000, of which at the moment maybe two to 2,500 are active, i.e. the others have died or broken up or whatever. And now we're talking about one company and there are others, you know, OneWeb, Google, talking about multiples, you know, 40,000 is the number mm. that Starlink's talking about. So that completely changes the dynamic of space. Obviously, it has massive implications, not only for the potential for collision and debris, which are major, major issues, but for a whole range of other legal questions, even about this idea that you can't claim it for yourself, you can't appropriate it. If I put 40,000, not that they're going to do this, but if I put tens of thousands of satellites in one orbit, then obviously that makes it more difficult for others to utilise that orbit. And that begins to challenge fundamental principles about what space is. Space is, we all have a say, we all have freedom of access subject to the principles. So there are many, many issues associated with that. But the debris issue is major. This liability regime I described still applies if debris collides with something. But of course, you have to identify the debris. And if it's just a small screw that's come off, it's impossible to identify. But assuming you can identify, this liability regime is there. But that's not really the point, although that sets up a regime of accountability. The point is we have to be very careful that we don't completely screw up doing activities that create an unsustainable amount of debris. Because once you do that, what you will do is you will compromise for everybody big countries, small countries, you will compromise every country's ability to utilise space and compromise humanity's ability to garner some of the incredible benefits that we can get from utilising space in a responsible way. So, you know, it's in everybody's interests, although they 
won't necessarily agree as to how to do it. But it's in everybody's interest to address these issues. And there are guidelines put in place already, non-binding, but they're guidelines of best practice, trying to encourage responsible behaviour. And that's what it's all about, encouraging a regulatory framework through a variety of ways that enhance and encourage responsible behaviour because in the end, despite the competitive nature and everybody wants to be the biggest and the best and, you know, make the most money and garner the most benefits, it's in everybody's interests that we don't make space an unsustainable area. That's important. That's definitely one of my concerns because of the junk that we have roaming around our own planet. It's very worrisome. But I also want to know, I had a, a conversation with Dr. Brad Tucker in another episode, and we were talking about this astronaut who went into space and accessed her ex-partner's oh, banking fuck. details yeah, yeah, yeah. and engaged in fraudulent activity from space. Allegedly. Al- allegedly, yes. Yes, I should pr- point that out. And then he went on to say that there wasn't a lot that people could do because she did all this in space. Can you explain what the consequences to doing illegal activity in space would be? Sure. I've got a different spin from Brad on that because that particular incident actually is pretty straightforward, to be honest, because the illegal activities took place while the astronaut was in the International Space Station. The International Space Station, which is the result of partnership amongst a lot of countries, there's an agreement which clearly sets out how jurisdiction works. So Stepping back for a moment, remember I said that Australian law does not apply to space, and that's absolutely clear. No country's law applies to space. However, like with aeroplanes and like with ships, space objects can be registered through the international framework and the national frameworks. There are registers and the consequence of the registration. So if Australia registers a space object, then it has, under the treaties, what's called jurisdiction and control. So assuming you have an Australian registered satellite in space, then Australian law applies to the object. So not to space, but to the object. Just like an Australian flagged ship in the high seas, Australian law does not apply to the high seas, but it applies to the ship and everybody on board. Just like, you know, I've just flown back from Malaysia two days ago on a Qantas plane the Qantas plane registered by Australia so that no matter where I was, Australian law would apply to me whilst I was on board the plane, notwithstanding that Australian law. Likewise, we have it. So with the International Space Station, it's pretty easy because all of the partners got together and they said, okay, let's work out who's going to register what in the space station. And because every partner state had put in lots of money, nobody was going to agree that just American law would apply or just Russian law or whatever. So the space station, which was agreed, was that even though it it looks and feels and tastes like one object, from a legal perspective, it was regarded as a series of objects. So America registers and has registered the American constructed parts of the space station, the Japanese, the Japanese module, the Russian, the Russian module. There's 11 European countries. They, through the ESA, have registered their module. There's a Canada, so Canada's registered that. So essentially it means that on the space station, this is a one-off, yeah, but on the space station, if I'm in American, the American module, then American law will apply to me. If I'm an Australian national in that module, then maybe 
Australian law can apply to me personally as well, but certainly American law applies. But the incident that Brad talked about, whilst in and of itself is, it sounds exciting and people are talking about crimes in space, that particular one is pretty straightforward from an analysis viewpoint, but it does give rise to that much, much broader and for me, much, much more important question about what do we do down the track? And that's one of the issues we need to think about. People beginning to talk about that. I'm involved in some discussions, but to be honest, we've got perhaps more pressing issues. And one of them is the debris issue that you mentioned. Another thing that Brad mentioned was, I think they've done some tests where they send, is it a squid or an octopus or something? Into space and it lays eggs. So these babies are born and the babies can't come back to Earth because they're actually created in space and made for space sort of thing. I don't know if you're if you know much about that, but there's some concern that when you go up to space as a human being, and let's just say you go up for your honeymoon and you create a baby. Yeah, everybody wants to have sex in zero gravity. And you're <laughs> <laughs> the mind boggles, of course. Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's a concern that someone's going to make a baby, you see. Yeah. And there's an ethical concern because if a baby is created up in space, maybe perhaps they won't be able to survive on earth because they're grown in an environment unlike earth. So I'm just wondering, are there any ethical frameworks to how humans are allowed to travel up? How long are they allowed up there for? And is there anything in development there? Firstly, the point gets back to what we were just talking about before. You know, people are going to go in space, going to have kids in space. As I said, we've got to try to work out from a legal perspective, what that means. But clearly, you know, there's many, many other issues beyond just law. It's policy and it's ethics, it's morality, it's culture, it's society, it's a whole range of things. And it's also science because I don't think we know, for example, what the scientific effects, I mean that in a gynecological way, the fertilisation of eggs in space, whether that might create something different. You know, we just don't know that. And maybe I'm not, I'm not aware of squids and things going to space and procreating. I'm not aware of that, but I'm not surprised if those things aren't happening. And so that science can then start to see, well, does space impact on that reproduction process? I don't know. But it, it certainly gives rise. There's no framework about how long people can go to space for, but clearly our physical body limitations are such. And so some astronauts have been in space on the space station for upwards of over a year. And in fact, there was an interesting experiment by the United States where one of the astronauts, it was a twin, and he was sent to space and was in space for, I think it was about 14 months. I could be wrong there, but a significant period, much longer than is normal. And then when he came back to Earth, he was then tested genetically and, and uh, you know, physically and mentally and then compared with his identical twin, who obviously had remained on Earth. And I know quite a number of astronauts, you know, I'm privileged to know quite a few, and I've spoken to quite a few of them about the physical effects of being in space, let alone the psychological and perhaps the genetic effects, because you are exposed to higher doses of radiation and all these things. The physical effects are quite dramatic. You know, your body is not subject to the same gravitational pull, so that has an effect on your bone density, for example so that you actually grow a little bit in space, physically grow. And then as you come back down, you know, gravity, your spine contracts a little bit. 
they've shown now they're effects on the operation of the eye. There's some issues there. but the, So there's nothing legally that says people aren't allowed to be in space for too long. But clearly we have to be, we have to understand what lengthy periods in low gravity, zero gravity, higher radiation, you know, confined spaces, stressful situations, unique environments, harsh environments, you know, where you do the wrong thing, it's immediate death, all those sorts of things. We have to understand what that does to the human body. If you and I, Amy, we might love each other, but if you and I are in a tin can for nine months going one way and nine months coming the other way, let alone incredibly harsh environment of Mars or even the moon, then, you know, we're going to kill each other. Not literally, but you you know what I mean? Psychologically, what's the effect of that? But as I said at the beginning of this podcast, we'll get there, but space is hard and we can't be complacent and listen to hyperbole and ignore the fact that there are many, many, many ethical, legal, moral, understood, but just technical laws of physics, laws of biology, laws of science, laws of, you know, technological things that we also need to understand and master before we can do some of these things, we will get there. I have one last question about something other than space, likely. (laughs) I ask all my guests, what do you think is going to exist? How do you think humanity and our technology is going to change? And what can you imagine exists in around 50 years that we just possibly couldn't imagine now or aren't really thinking about now? That's a great question, and I'm sure you get some wonderful answers from all of your guests. And, you know, I don't in any way, shape or form think of myself as a deep thinker on some of these things. Looking at it from the areas that I know a little bit about, if I said to my first-year students in international law, if I taught them at a university, what do you think international law is most about? I think many of them would say the environment, because every day we hear about climate change, we hear about the ozone layer, perhaps, we hear about a whole range of environmental issues. But interestingly, international law has only really been deeply engaged in issues of the environment for maybe four decades, which sounds like a long time, but it's not a long time. So the environment in the early days, when the outer space treaties were put together, for example, nobody thought about the environment of space. I mean, there are little bits and pieces in the treaties about contaminating space and bringing back contamination. I get that. But nobody thought about the environment on Earth, really in terms of international law, let alone the environment in space. And it's only been really from the 70s onwards, and then in earnest on climate change, only from the late 80s, early 90s, that we really focused on the environment from a regulatory viewpoint. And so in answer to your question about where will we be in 50 years technologically and all of that, I think I don't feel qualified to say what the technological advances will be because it's moving so quickly and it's beyond my contemplation. But I think if the priorities about what we regulate tell us anything, the technology will have to be developed in a way that allows humanity to exist sustainably, securely, and safely. In fact, coincidentally, they are the buzzwords of the UN talking about space, you know, the sustainability, security and safety of space activities and being involved in space. But I would also apply that to Earth as well. And so I think we need to develop technologies that will allow humanity to live in that way. So the technology, I think, will need to be cognizant of the needs of humanity more and more because 
even though, you know, every country acts in its own interests and every country is in the current geopolitical climate, one gets the impression that countries are becoming more and more inward focused again rather than outward focused. And, you know, that's a function of geopolitics. But in the end, not only is technology globalizing us, but common concerns and problems and opportunities of humanity have globalized us. And some of these issues are too big for one country, two countries, three countries to deal with or deal with to just for their own protection, let alone private entities, no matter how powerful and rich the people are. And so technology will have to reflect the fact that there are global concerns and global opportunities as well that we need to harness in an appropriate way. And so, again, it sounds idealistic and people are saying, well, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, everybody's country will act in their own self-interest. Of course they are and they will. But my argument is that my self-interest is in some of these big issues to do with space and other things is to find a common interest that also is in your self-interest so that we can work together, even if we don't like each other. Even if in other aspects we're competing on these big issues, we need to find common areas of interest that are important to both of us and work together to at least meet those goals. That will allow us to compete in other ways. But if we don't meet those common interest goals, then perhaps we ruin it for ourselves as well as I ruin it for you, but I also ruin it for myself. And that's a point that will drive our behavior notwithstanding loud voices, notwithstanding calls for dominance and fighting. And humans have been warring since they've been on the planet. So sadly, we can't stop that. But there's also massive areas of cooperation and the need for cooperation and commonality. And we need to find that. And I think technology will have to reflect that and hopefully help us find that. I agree with you. From what I've seen, there are lines being drawn in the sand and people are abiding by different standards, especially when it comes to pollution. And I mean, China's planting all these trees and everyone's trying to do their part. Well, most countries are trying to do their part. And so I can see some cooperation there. I think you're absolutely on track there because inevitably, if we don't, we'll suffer as a human race. When it comes to space, now there are quite a number of countries, many countries that have space capabilities, but there's still the United States, obviously, is still a major power in space, but there are other countries that have got significant space capability, Russia, China, India, United Kingdom, France. Australia is, is heavily dependent on space as well, and we're developing our own industry and capabilities. And so if we get it wrong in space to an unsustainable level and then irreversibly unsustainable, who's going to suffer the most? We'll all suffer, but the ones that suffer the most are actually going to be the big, powerful countries because they utilize space the most, which gives them, in a sense, technological and strategic and military and commercial and competitive advantages. But therefore, they are the most dependent on space. And therefore, the most vulnerable if the ability to access space and utilize space is compromised. And so there's another example, I think, of in the area of space, at least, and people disagree with me. Many people think that, no, that's not true. We've just got to go on and just look after our own interests. But in the end, it's not reversible if you go too far. And that will affect me as much as it affects you. And so I think in the area of space, they will find common interests that serve all of their bottom lines, even though they don't agree on other issues. Well, humans, we, we do 
we work within boundaries usually, you know. So I think once the boundaries are created, we will achieve what we need to achieve within those boundaries and governments and whatever will do those, you know, according to law and according to the regulations of, you know. I'm really optimistic, Stephen. Oh, I love that. I mean, it's yeah, great. Yeah, we have to be. <laughs> I am too. And quite often when I talk, people perhaps look at me a bit more sceptically and <laughs> people would say, oh, you don't understand and all that. And maybe I don't understand. But I think, you know, I've been doing space-related work for governments, many governments, and for the UN and for industry and in academia and trying to inspire people. And, you know, I'm on the advisory board of the Space Agency and I've been doing this for 20 years. I think one has to be optimistic because space is so incredible in so many ways. And people realise that, although sometimes, as I say, they focus in a binary way, but space is not binary. It's so complex and so many interesting and interrelated things. So I think people are realising that and onwards and upwards, so to speak, but in a responsible way. Well, thank you, Stephen, so much for joining me today. It's been amazing. It's been so deep. It's been a lot deeper than I thought it would go, and I've loved every minute of it. You asked some really tough questions, and I hope I've done it some justice, but, you know, there's many good people who feel strongly about issues related to space. And I'm sure you'll talk to many good people in your programs as well. And I'll look forward to listening to them all. I hope you enjoyed the very first episode of Wittishin's podcast. Please subscribe and you'll find another couple of episodes dropped today as part of our launch. Welcome to the official season of Space. Over the next coming months, there will be conversations with some of the biggest names in the space industry. So keep your ears peeled. And until next time, relax, read a book and enjoy the planet. <laughs>